Um, all right, well, welcome to DC5. Um, happy to have everyone here. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, I'm excited about this talk today. I've been looking forward to this talk on the calendar um, since we, we put it there uh, many months ago. So I'm excited to introduce Dr. Mike Keller. Um, Mike works at both NIH uh, in the critical care medicine department. And I think also you do some time at um, Johns Hopkins, right, Mike? Yeah, yeah, I uh, do lung transplant at Hopkins as well. Okay. okay. Um, and so Mike is here today to talk to us about heart-lung interactions in spontaneous and mechanical ventilation. Mike, again, I'm super excited. Thanks for being here. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Annie, for the introduction. So um, we're going to just jump right into this, guys. I'm, uh, uh, we're going to be talking about heart-lung interactions in spontaneous uh, and mechanical ventilation. I have no disclosures. Um, and uh, so just a, 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 the first thing I just want to point out is that um, you know, both spontaneous and mechanical ventilation can, can really have dramatic effects on, on the hemodynamic status of a patient. Um, and, and if we're not considering these effects uh, based on really a sound knowledge of, of the principles of physiology, we're, we're potentially missing out on really a wealth of valuable clinically relevant information. And I think uh, truly doing our patients a, a disservice. Um, so this is just kind of an outline of the, of the talk. And throughout the course of the talk, um, we're going to first uh, cover the physiologic determinants of, of cardiac output. Um, and, and now this will involve about, about 10 minutes of a, of a review of the physiology. And, and for many of you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you, uh, this can get quite tedious, and, and I may lose some of you, but, but try and stay put and understand as much as we can so that we can uh, apply these clinically. Um, we're going to cover uh, both spontaneous ventilation and positive pressure ventilation. And for positive pressure ventilation, that includes mainly intermittent positive pressure ventilation, but also a blurb on the effects of, of PEEP, um, although they're very similar. And then uh, throughout the talk, we'll talk about the effects of, of ventilation in, in various disease states, uh, and then how to avoid detrimental um, heart-lung interactions. So uh, first, a, a disclaimer. So the first thing is that there, there's going to be, as you'll notice, there'll be a lot, there'll be countless variables really to take into account when predicting the impact um, of ventilation on, on hemodynamics. And um, more often than not, we cannot measure all of these variables, or actually most of these variables. Um, and so what we end up doing at the bedside is uh, oftentimes resort to, to really guiding overarching principles uh, in order to make our, our, our best prediction, which is what we do a lot of times in the, in the ICU, and that, and that rings true here. Um, and then lastly, this is, this is really to serve as an introductory lecture. So um, I may not go into some of the other subtle nuances that, that are involved with this that, that are outside the scope of this lecture. So let's start off with a case. Uh, we have a 76-year-old female with COPD uh, and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Um, and you uh, come to evaluate her in the ED um, or for a consult in the ICU. Um, she presents with shortness of breath, uh, and she's having some chest pain. Um, she's in respiratory distress. Um, uh, she's got cool extremities um, and really significant amount of uh, increased work of breathing that you notice on exam. Um, she has an EKG with, with ischemic changes. Her troponin is a little elevated, and here's her, her chest x-ray, um, as you'll see here. So bilateral uh, pulmonary infiltrates concerning for pulmonary edema. Um, and so I want you to think about a, a, few, a few things. Um, so number one, um, what impact does her breathing pattern have on both her hemodynamic status, okay, given the comorbidities we mentioned, and then the degree of, of cardiogenic pulmonary edema, all right? And then to take this a, a step further, um, She's ultimately intubated. Uh, she's treated accordingly in the ICU. Um, and then four days later, uh, she's now undergoing spontaneous breathing trials. Um, and so uh, when you're, she's undergoing her SBT, I want you to just take a second and think about what are the potential impacts of extubation uh, on her hemodynamic and respiratory status, especially given the comorbidities that, that I just mentioned. Okay. And what kind of considerations should we make prior to, to extubation? So um, let's just start off with some just... Uh, so very basic guiding principles, and that's that the effects of ventilation on the cardiovascular system are, are primarily mediated by, by really two things, um, and those are changes in lung volume and then changes in intrathoracic pressure. Um, and spontaneous ventilation, as we know, is, um, is really characterized by an increase in lung volume and a decrease in intrathoracic pressure. And when I say intrathoracic pressure here, um, that you have to be careful with that. I'm using this as sort of an umbrella term, and, and really I'm going to be, this is going to be synonymous with, with plural pressure for the, for the sake of this talk. Um, and then mechanical ventilation um, is generally characterized by an increase in lung volume and an increase in intrathoracic pressure. So as you can see, 
Since both of these forms of ventilation increase lung volume, the primary differences here um, are there, there, there are differences uh, on the effects of, of pleural pressure, intrathoracic pressure, okay? So let's analyze where, where some of these effects uh, may take place. Um, so here uh, we have a diagram. This is our right ventricle, our left ventricle, uh, our pulmonary vessels. Um, here's our alveoli. Here's our pleural space. Uh, this is our pleural pressure, IVC, and our abdomen. Okay, so the, the mechanical effects of ventilation um, really result from application of, of mechanical stress to, to various parts of the circulation system here. And, and these are uh, the surface of the heart, uh, the, the pulmonary blood vessels, the interventricular septum, and then um, an area we don't often think about, which is the, the abdominal vessels. But really, if, if we want to have an understanding of, of the effects of, of ventilation on, on the cardiovascular system, um, we have to have an understanding of the factors that, that really determine cardiac output. So let's start off with, a, with a, a principle that we're all familiar with, the Frank Starling curve. And as we know, this, this informs us that, that cardiac output increases with increases in atrial pressure, uh, and that the slope of this curve will change with changes in the contractile state of the heart um, and changes in afterload, okay, such that um, if contractility were to decrease or afterload were increased, we would have a shift in this curve to the right, uh, which is what this is telling us is that um, at any given rate of atrial pressure, um, cardiac output here on the, on the y-axis will be lower. Um, and then with uh, increases in contractility, or decreases in afterload, we'll have a shift up. For the same filling pressure, we'll have higher cardiac outputs, okay? But let's, let's digress for just a moment. Um, and you'll notice here in this, uh, in this diagram that there are flow states represented by, by a negative atrial pressure, okay? Um, and to, this is gonna just be kind of a, a, a foundational component of, of, of the talk. And I know many of you are aware of why this is the case, but I want you to think about how can you have a negative atrial pressure, right atrial pressure that you're measuring, but still have cardiac output. Um, and well, that's because when, when we measure our right atrial pressures um, or our CVP, uh, the number that we're actually seeing is, is reference to, to atmospheric pressure, okay? Um, but, but this number really doesn't reveal the entire picture because we're actually missing half of the story here, okay? And so this, this number may mean little um, unless we know that the pressure surrounding the right atrium, and that's the, the transmural pressure. And that's simply the pressure inside the right atrium uh, minus the outside, which is uh, our pleural pressure, okay? And this is a, a concept that we probably most generally feel comfortable with in regards to the alveoli, but the same principles um, apply to the, to the cardiovascular system. So the transmural pressure here is the true distending pressure, the true filling pressure of the right atrium, okay? And so let me give you an example. Let's look at this a little closer. We have our right atrium here. Um, let's say we have a, a right atrial pressure of, of 10 millimeters of mercury. Um, well, our right atrium is surrounded by a chest wall, <laughs> and uh, there's, uh, we have an associated pleural pressure standing outside of this right atrium, okay? And so what we're measuring here um, is a right atrial pressure of 10. This is what we're seeing on our, on our um, central venous catheter. But of course, um, the true transmural filling pressure here is, a, uh, is, is 5, so 10 minus 5, okay? Now contrast this to um, uh, another patient. The right atrial pressure that we're that we're measuring here is three, okay. Um, but this pressure, patient <coughs> has a pleural pressure of negative five. Now the right atrial pressure that we're recording is lower, but the transmural pressure in this patient is 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 higher. This three minus negative uh, five to give us to give us eight. And let's say this patient were to take a deep breath or just a regular breath and lower their pleural pressure to negative ten. Um, and assuming we have no increase in flow, um, the, right the right atrial pressure may lower again to negative two. And again, this is what you're recording on your central venous catheter. But again, <clears throat> the transmural pressure here is really what matters. So looking at this alone in isolation, um, um, you could be missing a lot of information. So as you can see, um, the, the absolute right atrial pressure uh, we're measuring, um, uh, they're measuring the CVC. Um, or central venous catheter really changes with pleural pressure. And in fact, on this graph, the point where there's zero flow and transmural pressure is zero means that right atrial pressure essentially equals pleural pressure, right? And that's simple. If um, inside minus outside equals zero, those two are equal to each other. So as pleural pressure changes, you can imagine that cardiac output will shift along this axis. Uh, and with decreases in pleural pressure, <coughs> as we see during inspiration uh, and increases, um, in pleural pressure, as we see during expiration, 
um, we can see that this curve is going to shift along this, along this graph. Okay. But again, if we want to know um, the effects of this on hemodynamics, this graph also only tells half of the half of the story. And that's because it's important to keep in mind that the heart um, can really only pump what is given, what it's given, what it is fed. So in other words, cardiac output also depends on, on venous return. All right. And so this is our venous return curve here. As right atrial pressure lowers, um, venous return will, will increase. Okay. And so let's go into the factors that determine venous return. Well, in order to have flow, um, we must have a pressure gradient. We must have a, a driving pressure. I mean, you're all familiar with that concept. Um, and so the upstream driving pressure for flow is really generated by the systemic venous reservoir, okay? And that's called the mean systemic filling pressure, right? And essentially what this is, is the, the static elastic recoil pressure of the, the systemic vascular beds. And so what determines the, the recoil pressure here, our mean systemic filling pressure? Well, the primary determinants are uh, our vascular compliance, okay? How stiff those vessels are. Um, and the stress vascular volume in the, system, the systemic venous bed. So as you can see here, looking at their equation, if you were to increase volume, let's say by giving a fluid bolus, you'll increase the driving pressure for venous return. And, and likewise, <coughs> if the vascular compliance were to decrease, there's stiffer vessels with higher elastic recoil, let's say vasomotor tone increases because you give um, uh, vasopressors or you have an adrenergic response, your driving pressure will also increase, okay? Now, I emphasize the term stress volume here uh, because not all blood volume that resides in the vasculature is going to descend the, the elastic walls um, of the circulation. Okay? So a certain amount of blood, uh, known as the unstressed volume, pulls in the vessels um, without generating much pressure uh, until enough accumulates and starts stretching the, the vascular walls and generating recoil pressure. Now, this, you can think of this analogous to like if you were to take a balloon, um, and a deflated balloon, and, and put it on the table there would still be some air in that balloon, uh, even, if, even if you didn't blow in it, um, but it's not really exerting a, a, a recoil pressure. But once you started blowing air into that balloon, what you're really adding is stressed volume, and that's what's going to result in, re in the recoil pressure. Okay, So um, increases in abdominal pressure or any vasoactive agents, those may recruit unstressed volume to stressed volume and increase mean systemic uh, filling pressure and your driving pressure. Okay. And um, our, finally, our, our downstream pressure for flow is right atrial pressure, which is located in the thorax. And again, this is subject to, to pleural pressure changes. And then um, we also have to account for venous uh, resistance uh, to venous return as well. So as we can see, putting this all together, our venous return is really a function of three variables. Uh, our mean systemic filling pressure, our upstream pressure for flow, our right atrial pressure, our downstream pressure, uh, and then uh, venous uh, resistance uh, to, uh, to flow. Okay, so returning to our, our, um, our uh, venous return curve, now we can kind of better uh, appreciate the relationship between right atrial pressure and venous return. And so as right atrial pressure decreases, uh, the pressure gradient for venous return will increase and we have increased flow. Um, but you also notice a point where flow becomes maximal. Okay, and this generally occurs at a right atrial pressure around zero um, at atmospheric pressure. That's because at this point, um, you have uh, abdominal pressure uh, that rises above the intraluminal pressure in the, the, the great veins, the IVC, and it causes IVC collapse right at that thoracic inlet. Okay, and so notice here that flow doesn't, doesn't cease, but it becomes maximal um, as vessels flutter open and close up the thoracic inlet, and this is termed the vascular waterfall effect. Okay, and now because um, uh, resistance is simply uh, pressure gradient over flow, the slope of our line here um, is determined by, by resistance to venous flow, and changes in resistance will alter the slope of this curve. So as you can see here, it's really the, the, the negative inverse of resistance, but changes in resistance will, will affect the slope of this curve. And then lastly, we can identify mean systemic filling pressure on this graph. Um, if you take a look at our equation here, um, uh, you'll, uh, you'll notice that flow will become zero when mean systemic filling pressure and right atrial pressure are equal. Okay, so therefore, when we look at our right atrial pressure at zero flow, this effectively represents our mean systemic filling pressure. As we can see, if we were to give a, a fluid bolus um, or give vasopressor, which would uh, decrease compliance of the vessels and recruit stress volume, our mean systemic filling pressure would increase and we'd have a right shift in the curve. Uh, so for any um, given uh, right atrial pressure there, we'd have an increase in flow. And notice that our maximal flow has, has increased as, as well. Okay, so now if you're, if you're still following me here, 
Um, what we can do now is combine these two gir- curves, as, as uh, Arthur Guyton described in the, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, the cardiac output curve and the venous return curve onto the same graph, um, with the y-axis being blood flow, um, venous return or cardiac output, and the x-axis representing right atrial pressure. Uh, and importantly, the, the intersection of these t- uh, curves represents the true cardiac output for, for any given right atrial pressure. Um, and as, as you can see, um, it, it depends not only on just the cardiac function, uh, but all the variables that dictate the position of the venous return curve as well. And so this intersection is known as our operating point, um, or our, this is essentially the working central venous pressure that you're recording um, with, a, with a, a central venous catheter. Uh, but again, this value may, may mean very little in, in several circumstances because the, um, what really matters often is the transmural pressure, okay, which is, which is indicated here, which is right atrial pressure minus pleural pressure. All right. um, and so this is really what represents our, our transmural pressure um, here. So um, let's see how this all relates to, to ventilation uh, and how ventilation affects these, these variables. Um, well, again, we'll start with spontaneous ventilation. Uh, so let's take a bird's eye view here. Um, and and the, the, the main concept here is that we already talked about spontaneous ventilation increases lung volume and also decreases um, uh, intrathoracic pressure or pleural pressure. Um, and in general, uh, this will tend to increase preload, uh, increase right ventricular afterload, um, and increase um, left ventricular afterload. Okay, so another way of putting this is if you look at these three things, Spontaneous ventilation it tends to really increase the amount of volume in the chest. All right, let's see why that's why that's the case. So again, here are our guiding curves, um, and here is our, our uh, right ventricular cardiac function curve, and here's our venous return curve. And now, with spontaneous ventilation uh, inspiration, uh, the muscles of inspiration are activated and lower pleural pressure, uh, and as a result, the base of our cardiac function curve shifts to the left because again. Um, this is this point here, this base represents pleural pressure. And as you can see, we're now intersecting at a higher point on our venous return curve, okay? Um, as, as, right, as right atrial pressure um, has decreased, um, we have actually increased uh, venous return and thus cardiac output. However, we mentioned two changes here, not just a reduction in pleural pressure, but also an increase in lung volume. So as lung volume increases, um, we're going to have an increase in right ventricular afterload, and that shifts this curve down into the right a bit. Now, in normal health, we still will tend to have a, um, a higher cardiac output, um, but this is, this is kind of a summary of the changes we have from a cardiac output perspective. Okay. Now, so uh, why does right ventricular afterload change um, with changes in lung volume? And I know uh, some of you are probably familiar with this, but for a brief review, if we look at a relationship between lung volume and pulmonary vascular resistance, kind of have this U-shaped or, or inverted J-shaped curve here, where pulmonary vascular resistance is going to be lowest at FRC, um, and any decreases or increases above um, functional residual capacity will tend to increase pulmonary vascular resistance. Um, and that's because of the differential effects that these changes in lung volume have on alveolar blood vessels versus extra alveolar blood vessels. So when we look um, at, uh, at uh, changes that, that occur below FRC, um, what we can see is that our extra alveolar blood vessels tend to be collapsed. Uh, we also have um, uh, the combined effects of hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. Um, and so at lower lung volumes, um, the increase in pulmonary vascular resistance is, is largely due to the effects of uh, collapse of these extra alveolar vessels. But as uh, lung volume increases above FRC, um, our alveolar vessels, our alveolar vessels tend to be compressed um, by the alveoli. These increased lung volumes as exposed to uh, the transpulmonary pressure. Uh, and that tends to increase um, pulmonary vascular resistance as well. So um, with increases in lung volume, um, we would expect um, an increase in RV afterload. So getting back to our curves, uh, as you'll again notice, um, even though our our, our CVP has decreased, our cardiac output has actually gone up. And that's because, again, the the transmural pressure of the right atrium has actually increased, as we'll see here. Again, the, the transmural pressure of the of the, uh, of the atrium here is our right atrial pressure, which is right at this uh, point here, the, the red dot, um, minus our pleural pressure, which is again represented by the base of this diagram where um, right atrial pressure minus pleural pressure equals zero. And so this is, a, this is actually what we see uh, in the literature. So this is a, um, uh, a study uh, by Pinsky back in the, in the, by Mike Pinsky back in the 1980s. Um, and similarly, uh, here on the, on, the, uh, on, on the left here, you have uh, right atrial pressure 
this is right atrial transmural pressure. We have pleural pressure, and then we have um, CVP, um, which you'll notice is in a, during spontaneous ventilation, uh, as a patient um, decreases uh, uh, their pleural pressure, um, CVP goes down, but right atrial transmural pressure will actually increase, um, as you can see here. And then the opposite occurs with, with positive pressure ventilation. Okay. But again, this only tells, uh, again, half the story because we have to recognize the effects of spontaneous ventilation on venous return. And so how does spontaneous ventilation alter the, the venous return curve? Um, well, uh, if we take a look here back to our, um, our diagram uh, and we have our equations above, well, during spontaneous ventilation, we have a decrease in pleural pressure and we have an increase in lung volume. Okay, so right atrial pressure will go down. But with our increase in lung volume, we actually, we actually have diaphragmatic descent. And when we have diaphragmatic descent, this puts stress on the abdomen and increases um, uh, intra-abdominal pressure. And as that intra-abdominal pressure rises, uh, we have uh, an increase in stress volume. Okay, so we have a conversion of unstressed volume to stressed volume, and that tends to increase our mean systemic filling pressure. So not only do we have a decrease in, in right atrial pressure, um, but we also have uh, uh, an increase in mean systemic filling pressure uh, as well. Okay, and so what does that look like? Going back to our, our, our guidance analysis, we have an increase in mean systemic filling pressure, uh, and we'll be operating at a point um, um, here on our, on, our, on our graph. Okay, so um, a little bit higher cardiac output. Having said this, um, this the, the changes in, in, in venous return are actually dictated really by the, by the volume status of the patient. Okay, so um, this, was a, this was physiology described again by Fessler um, in, in the, in the uh, early 1990s. Um, but in the same scenario that we just presented, when we have a decrease in pleural pressure and an increase in lung volume, okay, and diaphragmatic descent, in a patient who is uvolemic or volume down, okay, we may have vessels, large vessels that actually collapse as we have an increase in resistance to venous return, okay? And so that may actually tend to, um, uh, to decrease um, our, our, our venous return. And so what does that look like here? Um, well, that's going to, again... When we have changes in resistance to venous return, that's going to affect the slope of our venous return curve. Um, and so in a patient who's hypovolemic um, or euvolemic, uh, they may look something like this. Uh, and cardiac output may not um, increase as much as we, um, or, or venous return may not increase as much as we, we expect. Okay. So this is the difference between a hypervolemic and a hypovolemic patient. Okay. Now, so, so we, we, we know now why, why um, uh, spontaneous ventilation may increase preload and, 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 and RV afterload, but what about its effects on the, on the LV? Well, in general, spontaneous ventilation and um, uh, with spontaneous ventilation, there tends to be a decrease in left ventricular stroke volume, uh, and that's really mediated by two main mechanisms. One is we have an increase in, in RV volume, um, which causes displacement of the interventricular septum into the left ventricle, and it directly impairs left ventricular filling. This is a process known as ventricular interdependence. And then two, negative pleural pressure actually impedes left ventricular ejection. <laughs> and, uh, and this is it, another way of saying this is that it increases LV afterload. So a number of studies have, have demonstrated um, that an increase in RV volume causes a decrease in left ventricular compliance and interferes with left ventricular filling. And as you can see here, the predominant mechanism is that the distended RV causes a leftward shift into the interventricular septum and into the LV. Um, and then uh, there's also experimental evidence that suggests that, uh, that ventricular interdependence is really amplified uh, in conditions of pericardial constraint, namely pericardial constriction uh, and tamponade. And um, although this is a phenomenon that uh, also occurs in the absence of the pericardium, uh, such as uh, after a pericardectomy, um, it, it's markedly reduced in, in those circumstances, okay? And so for an excellent review on this, um, Bob Weiss uh, has, a, has a review, actually of the 1980s and long, which covers um, uh, the effects on afterload and ventricular interdependence during spontaneous ventilation very nicely. Um, but, but again, ventricular independence can't be the entire explanation for the inspiratory fall in left ventricular stroke volume. And, um, and, and that's because in animal models, in which the RV is actually bypassed with, a, with an extracorporeal circuit. Um, we've also demonstrated the same fall in, 
in left ventricular stroke volume with inspiration. And so let's look at how pleural pressure um, affects afterload of the left ventricle. And so if we, if we define afterload as, um, as a systolic ventricular wall tension, then um, afterload um, is really a function of two, two variables, okay? Uh, and that's uh, transmural pressure and radius. As we know, wall tension um, is, uh, is equal to our transmural pressure times our, times our radians, okay? And so this was a mechanism that was described in uh, 1979 by Buddha and, and Pinsky. And so to just look at why uh, this is the case, let's take our left ventricle here. And our, um, this is our aorta. Uh, and this is our peripheral vasculature. Um, here's our pleural space. And let's say our peak systolic um, uh, 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 pressure generated by the, by the left ventricle is 100 millimeters of mercury. Um, well, uh, if our pleural pressure, again, is negative five, okay, the transmural pressure that the left ventricle has to generate um, during its uh, 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 during the peak of systole here is 105 millimeters of mercury. Okay, but let's say now that uh, the patient is takes a breath, a uh, deep breath, uh, and pleural pressure decreases to to negative 25. Okay, and the left ventricle um, still generates um, a, a pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury to overcome um, 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 resistance of the, of the peripheral vasculature. Well, in this case, the transmural pressure now is 125. So as we can see that negative pleural pressure is really an impediment to left ventricular ejection. It's kind of, you can think of, conceptualize it as, as just kind of pulling the, the ventricular walls open and, and, and not letting them um, uh, 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 close as easily. So um, if we, uh, on the other hand, were to increase pleural pressure to 25 millimeters of mercury um, and, uh, uh, and, and look at our transmural pressure, now it'd be 75, okay? So positive pressure in this case essentially facilitates the inward displacement of the left ventricular walls during systole and again, decreases um, left ventricular afterload. So um, negative pleural pressure increases in afterload, positive pleural pressure tend to, tend to decrease um, afterload. And, and this is a concept that is sometimes difficult to, to understand that afterload itself is actually really a, an intrinsic property of the, of the ventricle, not necessarily everything that has to do with what's going on um, upstream, all right? And then the last thing I wanna say is that uh, about this topic is that um, this phenomenon does not tend to occur with the right ventricle um, because both the right ventricle and the pulmonary vasculature are exposed to that pleural pressure, okay? Whereas uh, the peripheral vasculature uh, does not rely, uh, that, that the heart is ejecting against, it's not relying the, uh, is not relying the, the thorax. So, um, so what does this mean? What are the clinical implications of this? Well, um, it's really that large negative swings in, in pleural pressure can, can induce pulmonary edema. And, and this is what we've seen in the literature uh, really countless, countless of times. Um, and these effects are often really marketed, more marked in patients with reduced left ventricular, um, left ventricular function. So patients with uh, increases, a profound increase in respiratory resistance, such as in status asthmaticus or upper airway obstruction. Um, these are patients that have to generate much more negative pleural pressures to generate the, the, the same amount of flow. Um, and by that, by that same token, even patients who have decreases in respiratory compliance um, who have to generate large negative pleural pressures to generate the same tidal volumes. Uh, uh, so this includes patients with pulmonary edema, uh, pneumonia and heart failure, um, ARDS, other interstitial lung diseases. These are patients who are gonna develop wide fluctuations and large swings in negative um, pleural pressure. Um, so let's, let's put all this together on our, on our guidance curves. And so let's take a case where we have a high airway resistance. Okay. And again, we can have quite dramatic swings in pleural pressure in, in these cases, whether we have patients with COPD, asthma, post-extubation laryngeal edema, uh, actually during a, an acute asthmatic attack in, in a child peak negative uh, intrathoracic pressures can be um, uh, around negative 40 centimeters of water. Um, and so uh, in this case, um, uh, uh, we uh, lower our pleural pressure here uh, and we slide our curve to the left. Um, and we may say, well, if we're generating such low pleural pressures, won't we just keep maintaining an increase in venous return um, as much and, and maintain cardiac output? But remember, if we lower pleural pressure enough to bring right atrial pressure below atmospheric pressure, we'll reach our point of maximal venous return. Uh, and again, this is the point at which abdominal pressure rises above the intraluminal pressure of the IVC. Uh, and it'll cause IVC collapse um, uh, here. And so um, 
Accordingly, uh, large swings in negative pore pressure, like we just said, will selectively decrease left ventricular ejection. Okay, so this was our right ventricular curve. Now here's our, so uh, we have a limitation here in blood flow, and now our left ventricular curve here, uh, as we can see, increases in afterload and dramatic reductions in, in cardiac output. Okay, now if you take the same patient, um, someone who's uvolemic or hypovolemic, okay, you, um, you also have uh, even more dramatic reductions in cardiac output as our point of maximum flow is actually, is actually decreased. So if we go back to our case um, uh, our, with our 76-year-old female, uh, one with COPD and, and um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, who's presenting in respiratory distress, all right, we can again go back and, and think a little bit about what impact her, her breathing pattern has on while she's spontaneous breathing and her hemodynamic status. As we've shown, um, we're greatly increasing um, afterload uh, potentially of uh, placed on the left ventricle, um, which uh, may, may induce hypotension. Um, and then by increasing afterload, by increasing work on the heart, cardiac ischemia, um, which uh, is why she's, she's having chest pain uh, and ischemic changes on EKG. Um, and then this can also further trigger arrhythmias. Um, and when we think about the, the effects on the degree of our cardiac, uh, pulm cardiogenic pulmonary edema, well, again, we're decreasing, um, we're uh, increasing afterload um, and increasing potentially wedge pressure, precipitating worsening pulmonary edema in this case. And this essentially results in a, in a vicious cycle here, whereby we worsen uh, and precipitate worsening pulmonary edema, and then the patient, again, may generate more negative um, intrathoracic pressures to, generate, to, to maintain tidal volumes, which, again, further um, increases afterload of, of the heart, stress on the heart, worsening hypotension, uh, potential cardiac ischemia, and all the, the hemodynamic issues that we just mentioned. Okay, so, so really, um, the, the clinical implication of this is that you know, preventing or eliminating large swings in pleural pressure can decrease afterload. Um, and as we'll get to in a second, really the application of positive pressure ventilation includes a, including non-invasive ventilation um, to, to decrease these large swings of negative pleural pressure and decrease worker breathing uh, may also improve um, hemodynamics. So let's, uh, let's move on to positive pressure ventilation. And, and, um, and this will be much easier and much more concise now that we've had uh, uh, the, the brief background. And so as we've gone over, positive pressure ventilation increases lung volume, increases intrathoracic pressure. And in general, this is a guiding principle, tends to decrease preload, increase RV afterload, and decrease left ventricular afterload. So let's take a look. And so, and so we see that pleural pressure here um, uh, increases. Um, let's see here. Great. So with increases in pleural pressure, we're going to have a shift of our cardiac output curve to the right. Um, and as we can see, uh, we reach a new um, operating point here um, at, a, at a higher uh, right atrial pressure. But again, we're, the right atrial pressure that we're recording with our central venous catheter may be higher, but our transmural pressure, as we'll see, is actually diminished. Um, we have a reduction in, in, in cardiac output here. But, but we see that, that pleural pressure increases. Um, and again, it, it increases uh, really indirectly as static airway pressure increases. But but one question is, is how much does this increase? So in other words, if you have someone on a peep of, let's say, 10 centimeters of water, <laughs> does, your, does your pleural pressure increase by, by 10 as well? Um, or if their end inspiratory alveolar pressure, let's say, is, is 25 centimeters of water, um, does their pleural pressure increase by that amount? Um, and I think that's important information because in order to estimate how, how far this curve shifts, it's obviously important to know, uh, to, to know this. Well, um, just a... a, a Slight digression here, but um, really predicting how uh, airway pressures are, are transmitted to that pleural space is, is difficult. And um, um, uh, Chopin and O'Quinn and Marini um, have provided some ways to, to, to estimate this. And so um, one way to estimate how much of the airway pressure that you're applying at the, the proximal portion of the, the, the trachea is transmitted to that pleural space, um, looking at this equation here, another way to say this is, is uh, looking at the bottom um, how for, for our, our increase in, in, in alveolar pressure um, or a change in airway pressure that we're applying, how much does the pleural pressure change? Well, um, it's related, it's really a ratio, and it's a ratio of, of the compliance of your lungs over the compliance of your lungs plus chest wall. Um, and so let's, let's clarify this a little bit more. Well, um, what's a normal lung compliance? Well, a normal lung compliance is about 200 cc's per centimeter of water. 
A normal chest wall compliance will call about 200 cc's per centimeter water. Of course, the combined compliance of the respiratory system um, is, uh, is, is 100, centimeter, uh, 100 cc's per centimeter of water, but each in of themselves are about approximately these values. So if you're to plug that into this equation here, uh, the compliance of the lung over the compliance of the lung plus the chest wall, this is about one half. And so what this means is that normally about 50% of our alveolar pressure is transmitted to the pleural space. So um, if we were to put somebody on a, on a PEEP of five, uh, and there's uh, about uh, 2.5 centimeters of water of that will be transmitted to the, to the pleural space. Um, and so this, is, this can be incredibly important, um, important for interpreting a lot of the data that we obtain in the ICU. Uh, and as I just mentioned, it's often not enough to, to simply know the absolute value you're seeing, but things like CVP, plateau pressure, SWAN numbers, these are all affected by changes in pleural pressure. And, and what you're truly interested in is, is actually their, their transmural pressure. Um, so let's look at this again a, a little more closely. We have our alveolar pressure, our airway pressure, pleural, um, uh, pleural pressure here. Let's say we have a spontaneously breathing patient. Uh, and so they're at the end of... Uh, uh, at the end of expiration, um, there's no flow or in a no-flow state, atmospheric pressure zero, so our alveolar pressure is zero, okay, and our uh, pleural pressure with normal uh, pleural pressure generally at this resting state is around negative three, negative five, um, but let's say we put them on a ventilator and apply a PEEP of 10, uh, and so now alveolar pressure uh, is, is 10, let's say, at, um, at, the, at the end of expiration here, um, so how much does our pleural pressure increase in this case? Well, again, when we look at our equation here, uh, if we have normal compliance of the lungs and normal compliance of the chest wall, it should increase by about 50% of what we applied. So by about five. So pleural pressure should go from negative five to about uh, to zero. And as we can see, our transmural pressure in this setting is, is 10. But let's say chest wall compliance were to decrease. So we have somebody who's morbidly obese, they have ascites, um, something of this nature, let's say it decreases by uh, a quarter. So it goes down to 50 cc's per centimeter of water. Okay. Well, now if we plug this into our equation, we can see that this is about 80%. Okay. And now 80% of that alveolar pressure is transmitted to the, to the pleural space. So instead of going from negative five to zero, we, we can imagine this may go from uh, negative five to three. Um, and so we're recording the same exact um, uh, pressure here in the airway. Uh, but our transmural pressure is, um, is, uh, is lower, okay? So if we take a look at this, um, during a positive pressure uh, breath, we have a shift in our curve to our right, and this is somebody with a normal um, uh, chest wall and compliance, um, but if we took somebody who um, was obese or had ascites, we may see something like this, where uh, we have uh, a greater increase uh, in pleural pressure for a given uh, airway pressure that's applied, um, and, uh, and its consequent effects on, 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 uh, on preload, okay? Um, in addition, uh, uh, we uh, have an increase in lung volume with positive pressure ventilation, just like spontaneous ventilation, which will tend to uh, increase afterload. Uh, the one caveat here is that uh, in, if the, the increase in lung volume here may actually reduce afterload if we're starting below um, FRC. Um, and we're actually bringing somebody up closer to, to what their, their, their natural resting FRC would be. Um, and we may actually improve afterload um, in this case on RV. And so um, what, does this, uh, what does this signify? Um, so again, in, in an ARDS patient who's, who's not obese, um, less airway pressure uh, may be transmitted to the pleural space. And so we may see less hemodynamic effects due to, um, due to increases in, in pleural pressure, both effects on venous return and our effects on, on left ventricular afterload, okay? Um, now we may see increases in, in transmural pressure, which may increase RV afterload, but again, that'll be affected by, by the total lung volume, okay? And so in fact, several studies have, have shown that in, in patients um, in which the, the application of, of PEEP uh, uh, determined um, uh, effective alveolar recruitment. So if we actually applied PEEP and there was adequate alveolar recruitment, um, there are subsequent decreases um, in mean pulmonary artery pressure, um, and uh, uh, while well, cardiac output is not severely affected. So, so the predictability of alveolar recruitment re really can be very important to predicting the hemodynamic responses to PEEP, uh, and the chief mechanism by which increases in PEEP will induce hypotension um, will be really uh, through increases in afterload by way of overextension rather than changes in pleural pressure per se. 
But this is the opposite of patients with obesity um, or uh, reductions in chest wall compliance, um, as we'll see in a second. Um, but uh, again, here, the, uh, also this is just pointing out that increases uh, in, in our partial pressure of carbon dioxide uh, as well. And when we, uh, and patients are oftentimes um, permissively hypercapnic, will increase our PBR. But if we take an obese patient with, with ascites, uh, again, um, in these patients, more airway pressure will be transmitted to the, to the pleural space. Um, and so we'll see more hemodynamic effects due to that, that pleural pressure change. Um, and this has both effects on the initial turn and effects on the afterload. Um, and, uh, and a decrease in transmolary pressure may preserve RV afterload uh, in this case. Um, but again, this will be dictated by the overall total lung volume that's, that's achieved. So this is all really to say that when evaluating a patient on a ventilator, it's important to consider uh, and really estimate what the relative compliances of the, of the lungs versus the chest wall are in order to predict how changes in airway pressure um, will, will impact um, hemodynamics, okay? Um, and again, we, we've, uh, we've just uh, reviewed how, how changes in pleural pressure and, uh, uh, and, uh, and lung volume affect cardiac function. Uh, but again, we also have to be mindful of the effects on, on venous return. So in a, in a volume replete patient on positive pressure ventilation, uh, again, we typically have a, a rightward shift in our venous return curve. And again, that's because we have diaphragmatic descent. We have increases in intraabdominal pressure. Uh, and therefore, if we have increases in intraabdominal pressure, we have increases in mean systemic filling pressure. And so when we um, initiate mechanical ventilation on a volume replete patient, um, we oftentimes don't have the profound reductions in blood pressure um, that we see uh, in a hypovolemic patient. Um, because in a hypovolemic patient, um, we, uh, uh, we may have um, collapse of the great veins uh, and an increase in resistance to, to venous return this is our volume replete. Um, here's our volume deplete patient. And now our curve may actually look um, something like, like this, okay, in our hypovolemic patient. Now think about what happens when we give induction agents um, and sedatives peri-intubation. Um, so think about the effects on vasomotor tone of the venous vasculature. Um, well, we can have uh, a decrease in vasomotor tone with a decrease in compliance and stress volume, which results in a decrease and mean systemic billing pressure. And so actually our curve may look something like this. So we can have pretty dramatic reductions in, in cardiac output um, in, in these settings. So these are really the patients at greatest risk of, of hemodynamic collapse, peri-intubation, our hypovolemic patients um, who are being administered um, agents that reduce vasomotor tone. And obviously the, the administration of a, of, of a fluid bolus um, or even vasopressors may mitigate these physiologic changes and, and result in an appropriate shift uh, here in our venous return curve. And so um, even if the, the patient is volume replete, um, their maximal venous return though will, will be, will be um, decreased. Um, so when we think about the application of PEEP, we've been talking more about intermittent positive pressure ventilation. Um, but when we apply PEEP, we do have kind of a static change here in, uh, uh, in, uh, in airway pressure and thus intra-abdominal pressure. So um, in the setting of PEEP, uh, I won't spend too much time on this, but the one thing to, to keep to account is that our maximum um, value for uh, our maximal venous return will actually decrease because instead of occurring at atmospheric pressure around zero, um, we tend to get collapse at, at higher pressures where that uh, abdominal pressure, um, since the abdominal pressure is increased due to PEEP, we tend to have that startling resistor effect at, at higher pressures. Um, and then lastly, as you can see, um, shifts of this cardiac output curve um, to the left or to the right um, along this venous return curve will really have varying effects on, on cardiac output, um, really depending on if the patient is operating on the plateau portion um, or the ascending portion of the, of the curve, okay? So patients operating on the ascending um, uh, curve should be predicted to have slight falls in their cardiac output as the curve shifts to the right, but those on the plateau portion would expect to have little uh, changes. And so this is some of the physiology that comes into play during um, the consideration of pulse pressure variation, stroke volume changes, um, and IVC collapse during cyclic ventilation. Um, so let's look at positive pressure ventilation in the left ventricle. Um, and in contrast to, to um, spontaneous ventilation, uh, positive pressure ventilation tends to reduce left ventricular afterload, again, by decreasing the peak systolic transmural pressure uh, required to eject blood out of the thorax. And while this effect is minimal normal health, it's still there, um, this can contribute um, significantly in, in patients with heart failure. Um, and, and this, again, uh, uh, has been borne out countless times in the, in the literature. 
um, uh, with, with several studies that indicate that cardiac output goes up in heart failure patients uh, when you apply PEEP. Um, and in fact, uh, this is why, um, as we all know, the initial therapy for cardiogenic pulmonary edema um, is often CPAP, and, and not just from a respiratory perspective, but really to relieve the, the, the hemodynamic consequences. But the, here, the, the concept here is that it's really only um, or most effective if it's abolishing swings in your intrathoracic pressure. Okay, so if the, the, the PEEP has to be high enough to be able to abolish swings in intrathoracic pressure and, and pressure, and they usually can tolerate these levels of PEEP. So if you have a decompensated heart failure patient, you're intubating them, um, starting at a PEEP of 10 or, or, um, or even a little bit higher is a reasonable strategy, assuming that your airway pressures are otherwise not concerning. Um, and, and you can always come back down if they're oxygenating well, um, but, it, but it likely won't hurt them and it, and it could potentially help um, at, the, at the start. Okay, so I'm going to finish with um, weaning and, and extubation failure, and um, I know we're familiar with, with a lot of these concepts, but um, again, the, when we think about the transition from positive pressure ventilation to, to spontaneous breathing, um, again, this is, uh, this is uh, characterized by really an increase in intrathoracic blood volume, an increase in left ventricular afterload. These patients are also going to have increased work of breathing and oxygen consumption. So um, these are patients who are at high risk of, again, developing pulmonary edema, post-intubation, hypotension, and myocardial ischemia, okay? Um, and, and in fact, um, you know, many patients actually, we oftentimes don't think about this, but probably fail weaning for cardiovascular reasons rather than, than primary pulmonary reasons, um, even in the absence of, of hemodynamic instability. Um, but, um, you know, even somebody who's, who's on, on vasopressors, and this is why we always stress caution when, when weaning somebody who's on vasopressor supports. And, um, and then, you know, you, you'll hear Michael Pinsky say this, and I tend to agree, but you, you never wean somebody who's hemodynamically unstable uh, from mechanical ventilation because you'll kill them. Um, but again, failure to wean often reflects cardiovascular um, insufficiency here. Um, and it, it's also important to keep in mind um, the effects on the RV as well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the differences in pleural pressure between positive um, uh, between uh, positive pressure ventilation and spontaneous breathing, um, the changes in intrathoracic pressure won't have much of uh, um, uh, an effect on RV afterload. But again, think about the volumes that the patient's taking. So again, increases in, um, in, in lung volumes and tidal volumes with somebody after they're extubated on a spontaneous breathing trial um, will increase RV afterload. And so we have to think about the effects on that as, as well. And so obviously the, the key here is to really to, to be mindful and, and, and think about preventing um, volume overload um, during weaning and, and then when we, when we extubate. Um, so uh, let's look at a couple examples of this um, from the literature. And um, this is an example of some of the physiology I just described. Uh, and this is data uh, from, from um, Lemaire um, back in the, the late 1990s. And this is, this is data um, for patients with COPD um, who are undergoing spontaneous breathing trials, um, and they demonstrated increases in pulmonary capillary wedge pressure uh, during failed spontaneous breathing trial events, okay? And so as we can see here, uh, this demonstrates a transition from positive pressure ventilation to spontaneous breathing. And again, these patients are at risk of wild swings in, in pleural pressure, negative pleural pressure, because they have high resistance. And as you can see here, here's esophageal pressure. Um, and then um, there's, uh, there's two y-axes here, but esophageal pressure here, which is slightly positive as the patient's on um, positive pressure ventilation. Um, and then uh, we have uh, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure here. And as we transition from um, positive pressure ventilation uh, to spontaneous uh, ventilation here, we can see that um, our esophageal pressure, now we have our uh, pretty um, uh, 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 noticeable swings. Uh, in our, in our uh, uh, esophageal pressure. Again, esophageal pressure is a surrogate here for pleural pressure. So we have these wild swings here. And as we can see, because of the, the effects of this on the left ventricle, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is rising. And it's not only rising, but it's, it's going through the roof here. Um, and so not, not subtle. Um, these patients, the majority of these patients were ultimately diuresed um, and successfully mean days later. But here's kind of an insight into some of the physiology that, that may be occurring behind the scenes. And then similarly, uh, this is a study by Gibran back in the, um, uh, in the late 90s uh, as well. And what they're looking at, they had pulmonary artery catheters, uh, that's uh, Swan-Gans catheters um, in patients and monitored um, mixed penis oxygen saturations of these patients. 
And so um, with declines in venous oxygen saturations as a, as a marker again for declining cardiac output, um, we can see two groups of patients. And, and can you guess uh, who was weaned successfully and, and who, um, who failed uh, their uh, spontaneous breathing trials? Well, uh, as you can guess, um, these are the patients who are weaned successfully. And the patients who had uh, weaning failure had substantial declines in some uh, mixed venous oxygen saturations um, as a result of reductions in, in, in cardiac output um, from uh, the effects of spontaneous ventilation on their hemodynamic status. So um, just to kind of review some, some key points here. Um, so the lung volume effects of positive pressure ventilation and spontaneous ventilation, um, these are similar and they both tend to increase RV afterload. Um, but PEEP can have varying effects um, on, uh, depending on um, uh, its impact on lung volume in relation to functional residual capacity, depending on whether you're actually recruiting um, lung volume uh, or, you're actually, or, you're, or it's tending to overdescend. Um, but the key differences in effects um, uh, on pleural pressure and positive pressure ventilation tend to have decrease in left ventricular afterload and preload. And with spontaneous ventilation, we tend to have increases in left ventricular afterload and preload. Um, Large swings in negative pleural pressure um, can precipitate pulmonary edema, hypotension, and increased work of breathing, um, and increased oxygen consumption, um, which can, uh, again, induce myocardial ischemia. And so keep these, keep these points in mind when evaluating a patient in respiratory distress, somebody with COPD, asthma, again, uh, ILD, anything that's going to result in these large swings in, in negative pleural pressures. Um, and positive pressure ventilation can, can help mitigate these effects. Um, and knowing the underlying um, um, cardiac function of these patients may be very helpful in predicting these as well. Um, differences in relative compliance of the chest wall versus the lung uh, will affect changes in pleural pressure. And that, that can have an impact on, um, on management of patients with ARDS versus, versus obesity. Potential impacts on the interpretation of plateau pressures, as we just saw. You can have the same exact reading between two different patients, but their transmural pressures may be different because less, uh, more or less uh, of that pressure will be transmitted to the pleural space. Um, and then keep in mind the potential impacts of this on, on hemodynamics. And then lastly, the transition from positive pressure ventilation to spontaneous ventilation um, upon excavation, again, represents really a cataclysmic shift uh, in a patient's uh, physiological state. So um, it's important to consider whenever we're weaning patients, consider the volume status of the patient, uh, their underlying cardiac function, their current hemodynamic status, uh, their potential to develop hyperinflation, which is something I, I didn't talk about. But again, think about the impacts of dynamic hyperinflation as well um, on, um, on uh, right ventricular afterload, um, the potential for laryngeal edema in these patients and the impact that the increase in resistance will have um, on cardiac function. Um, and then uh, this, is, this may guide um, uh, methods of spontaneous breathing trials whether or not you want to use a, a T-piece, uh, pressure support, or CPAP, um, as we just saw, um, the application of positive pressure may um, really mitigate those uh, effects, those hemodynamic effects that we're seeing, uh, which may even be revealed with the use of a, of a T-piece. Uh, and with that, uh, I will end there. Thank you and happy to answer any, any questions.